is through love that God sustains our spirits. A reconciled creation is the fuel for our hope. We await the future day where every tear is wiped away. For it has been told, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. From one end of the sky to the other, our Savior is coming on the clouds of heaven. Awesome. The Spirit of the Lord is in this place. Amen. Are you glad you decided to come to church this evening? All right. Thank you. Everybody, this is Adam. Adam did an awesome job working behind the scenes. Works with our tech team. Well, good evening. I'm going to go ahead and give this a try. Everybody, throw up a quick prayer. Well, praise the Lord. God is so good. I was out there. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All the time. God is good. And um, I just, so many things I want to get into. I just have to start by, I see my friend Gary Priest down here in the front row. He's been on our board, church board for over, what, 30 years. And uh, he's a dear friend of mine. And it's his birthday. So Gary, happy birthday. We love you. And I am also so excited. My mom is sitting about five rows back right here. We love you, Vicki. And she has been working so hard on this book project. And, and um, we knew right away that this was a project that we wanted to see through to completion. And I, too, have had the chance to read through it. And it's thrilling right up to the very end. It's current. It's prophetic. It's talking about things that you're going to un see unfolding in the days to come. And uh, it, I couldn't be more excited. So I hope you'll come out on October 15th and 16th and get your own copy and read along with us. So that's going to be so much fun. And having the Tainies here, can't wait for that. Also wanted to mention, we have an upcoming Israel trip. Now, if you have never been to Israel, come on, you've got to get there. It takes the Bible from being black and white, and it turns it into 3D and living color. And uh, it's the trip of a lifetime. It's an investment. And the Lord's heart is centered 
in Jerusalem. It's the apple of his eye. You get to walk in the land, in the very places where Jesus lived and did ministry. And we're going uh, in April of next year. So if you can, I know spots are really limited at this point. So get your name on the list soon if you want to come. And then I told you guys that I had a surprise, a big announcement that I wanted to make. And here it is. So a while back, our church had gotten involved with, in fact, it was the last thing my dad was a part of before he went home to heaven. He traveled at the end of last December to Texas in an effort to help locate these red heifers. And he found them, and he was so thrilled to to share that with us. And so since that time, our church has been at the forefront of trying to help get these red heifers back to Israel. Well, I'm here to tell you, after so much hard work, there was so much opposition, so much political red tape, we worked through all of it, and as of last Thursday, September 15th, five red heifer cows landed in the nation of Israel. Now, some of you are thrilled, some of you are excited, and many of you are saying, what in the heck is a red heifer? Why are we happy that they're in Israel? In fact, a coworker of mine sent a note that on Google, it was like the fifth top searched thing on the day that they were shipped over there. What is a red heifer? And um, it's, it's significant to the Jewish community because before they can build their temple and reinstitute worship of Jehovah, they need to be purified, and the way that that was done is through the sprinkling of purified water and the ashes of a red heifer, and it's very specific on how they do all of that, and, and so through great efforts, we've been able to locate these heifers, and they were sent over there. This is the next thing in God's prophetic calendar. As we march towards that day when Jesus comes back and he rules and he reigns from Jerusalem and he sits on his throne and rules with a rod of iron. And, and all of that's coming, but this is the next thing. And it, it's interesting that as you look at the date, September 15th, 2022, that was the date they were shipped. Well, it was two years earlier on September 15th, 2020, that the Abraham Accords were signed. There are no accidents. God is moving. The prophetic picture is coming together. And if you don't, if this isn't making sense to you, all you need to know is that Jesus is coming back soon. He is. And our church has a history. We have a long and storied history of getting involved in what God is doing. We don't just read the Bible like a dry textbook because of the heart of my father. He would read the Bible and he would look for ways to get involved in what God was doing. And so that began with him reading Isaiah 49, 22 about God bringing the Jews back to the Holy Land and make, helping them to make Aliyah. And so over the past 20 years, our church has given millions of dollars to help Israel, people from Israel get back to their homeland. Um, also, you look at some of the, the projects that we've been involved with over the years. We look for opportunities to step into the story. It talks about, once again, they'll be planting vines on the hills of Samaria. I have been to the hills of Samaria and planted vines. We look for ways to get involved. And so this is what God is doing. And we couldn't be more excited. Now, um, we're working with the rabbis 
to see if they can get out here on Sunday, November, or October 20th, so Sunday evening, and we hope to bring a red heifer here to the church so you can see one. And we're gonna have them here and we'll do the deep dive on all of that. And for those of you with questions, you can go to our website and under the Get Involved tab, uh, there's a kind of a white page that will help answer some of your questions, okay. And then one more thing I just had to share. My dad would love this night so much. He really would. And you know, I had the most powerful experience because this is my first time teaching a Feast of Trumpet celebration, and it's something that was in my dad's heart. And, and as I was reading some of the books, you know, that are out there on the Feast of the Lord and in study and preparation for tonight, I, I found his old sermon notebooks. And uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just want to say they were really good. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> Big surprise. And so I'm reading his notes, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And then I just had this, this feeling. I was like, Dad, I wish you could be here. Because I just, I foresaw this. I knew God was going to show up in a big way tonight. And I was like, oh, I wish you could be here. And in that moment, I just felt like he was right there in the, my office, his old office with me. And I saw that big, goofy grin that he would always get on his face, you know, the one that spread from ear to ear. And I just heard him say, I'm so proud of you guys. And I'm so excited for you. So I just, I had to share that. And as we think about, you know, this, this night and what it means to our church, um, you know, it's really the journey that my father has brought us into. I mean, so many people are like, why do you guys celebrate the feasts? And, and really, it was something that was in the heart of my father. And, and so long ago, when he got saved as an 11-year-old kid at a Billy Graham event, he woke up the following morning and he saw a newspaper and there was Israel on the front cover of the newspaper and he thought, oh my gosh, this was in the Bible. Like, what are we doing talking about Israel? And his heart was pricked and he was connected to the land and later on to the people. And we've been on a journey as a church finding our rhythm in what God is doing. And so often God works in cycles and in patterns. And as we've dived in to the feasts and what they mean, we've learned so much. And so what you're going to get tonight is the journey I've been on and what I've processed and what I've assimilated sitting under the teachings of my father. And so that's what I'm going to share with you. And one of the scriptures he shared with us comes to us from Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. A couple of things that stick out. First notice, they're the feasts of the Lord. He says, these are my feasts. So they're not just the feasts of Israel or the Jewish people. These are the feasts of the Lord. And then notice, too, how the word feasts there. And in the, the Hebrew, it's the word moed. And the word moed speaks of an appointment or an appointed time. So these are divine appointments with God, you might say, where God comes down and he meets with his people. But then you also have this other word, they're convocations. 
And that word is an interesting word. It literally refers to either a public meeting or a dress rehearsal. So the feasts of the Lord, then, are divine appointments that serve as dress rehearsals. Before you have a big event, before we had this event tonight, there was a dress rehearsal where we went through everything, and we had the choir, and we had the curtain drop, and all of that, or maybe your own wedding, and you go through all the motions of what the ultimate fulfillment will be, and, and so too the Lord says, each feast is a divine appointment that will prepare you for the real thing. Well, what is the real thing? They all speak to the coming of the Messiah. So let's walk through quickly the seven feasts. There are seven feasts that are scattered throughout Israel's calendar year. There are the first four that occur in the spring and the last three that take place in the fall. And and what's interesting is you look back on the first four feasts, which all happen in the spring, amazingly, specifically, pointedly, Jesus fulfilled each one of those feasts on the day. So Jesus was crucified on the feast of Passover, the very day, not the day before, not the day after. Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. He was then buried on the second feast of Israel, which is the feast of unleavened bread. Jesus was buried on unleavened bread. The third feast in Israel is the feast of first fruits. Jesus rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. Praise the Lord. And then the next feast happens 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Shavuot. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. So you have the first four feasts. They all take place in the spring. Then there's a gap. And that's when the summer harvest would take place. And there were no feasts during the summer harvest. That's when the work was being done. Well, guess what? We've been living for the last 2,000 years in this season of harvest where God is gathering for himself a people from every nation and tongue and tribe and kindred, believers from around the globe who can all gather at his feet and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. So after the summer harvest, you come to the next feast. And you know what the next feast is? The Feast of Trumpets. That's what we're celebrating here tonight. And it celebrated the ingathering of the harvest. It was followed by the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the same way that the spring feasts all pictured Jesus' first coming, the fall feasts all anticipate his return. You see, Jesus made a promise On the eve of his crucifixion, so the night before he's about to be betrayed into the hands of evil men and pinned to a tree where he'll suffer a torturous death, paying for the sins of the world, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room and he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? He said, believe also in me. In other words, put your faith in me in the same way that you have faith in God. And then he made this promise. He said, in my father's house, There are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's John 14, verses 1 through 3. This is the blessed hope of every believer. This is why this room is packed out with 3,000 people here tonight, because Jesus made a promise that he's coming back for his church. 
And Jesus never breaks a promise. But some people in here are thinking, well, okay, promise? Well, that was 2,000 years ago. What's he doing? What's he waiting for? Let me tell you. The Bible tells us that the reason he's waiting and being patient is because he wants everyone to get saved. He's not willing that any should perish. Besides that, the Bible says that to God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as a day. So in God's economy, you know, we think he's been gone 2,000 years. God's saying, hey, I've just been gone the weekend, and I'm coming back tomorrow. Amen. The point is, Jesus is coming back soon. Now, now we don't know the day or the hour. We're not privy to that information. However, the Bible tells us that we should be aware of the times and the seasons. So we can't pinpoint a day or an hour, but we can read the tea leaves, as it were. We can look at the prophetic landscape, see what's happening in our world, and by discerning the times, we can know that Jesus is coming back soon. It's kind of like this. We have many servicemen and women here in San Diego, and oftentimes they'll be on deployment, and, and they'll be telling their spouse, I can't tell you exactly what day I'm coming home, but let's just say that everyone will be watching football and eating turkey. It'll be around that time. And everyone will know, okay, they'll be home for Thanksgiving. In the same way, the Lord says, I can't tell you the day or the hour, but there are some things that you can look to in the world and what we see happening in our world. Let me just tell you that the world is ripe for the return of the Lord, and we ought to be watching and waiting. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, verse 42. Let's read this verse together out loud. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. All right, the Lord's coming back, and the Feast of Trumpets anticipates that. Now, the feast is known by a couple of different names to our Jewish brothers and sisters. They don't know it as the Feast of Trumpets, they know it as Rosh Hashanah. And of course, as John was just sharing, Rosh Hashanah ushers in the new year. In fact, the words Rosh Hashanah mean head of the year, which is interesting because it's actually the seventh month on the Jewish calendar, and yet they celebrate it as the beginning of the new year. Now, why would they do that? Well, according to ancient Jewish tradition, it was in this month and on this day that God created Adam and Eve. So, in a sense, I suppose it's the birthday of humanity. Happy birthday to all of you. Gary, not just you, but all of you guys. Happy birthday. It's a brand new year. By the way, this particular new year is significant because it is a year of jubilee. So every 50 years, something significant happened in Israel. And on the 50th year, the land was given a Sabbath rest and all debts were forgiven. Does that sound good to anybody? Amen. If you had become an indentured servant because you had a debt that you couldn't pay and, pay, and so you said, I'll work for X amount of years until the year of Jubilee, all those debts were canceled. Everyone was set free. And so it is meant to be a year dedicated to rest, restoration, and freedom. That's what we're entering into in God's spiritual calendar. Praise the Lord for that. Also, the other name by which this feast was known is Yom Turah. Yom Turah. Turah means to shout or to raise a noise. So it's a day of awakening. It's a day of shouting. Now, it's interesting because all of 
Israel's other feasts had elaborate ceremonies and scriptures that were read along with them and that went, uh, coincided with the feast. But the only thing God says to do on this feast is to blow the trumpet. Now, they would always blow the trumpet on the first day of every new month, but on the feast of trumpets, on this new seventh month, they would blow the trumpet 100 times. And, and the kind of trumpet they would blow is this ram's horn. This, it's called a shofar. Shofar. Everybody say, shofar. Show good. All right. Now, the ram's horn, come on, just bear with me. I'm a dad. It just comes with the territory. It just happens. But the ram's horn reminds us of an Old Testament story. They're in Genesis 22, when Abraham, the father of our faith, the patriarch of our faith, he takes his one and only son, the son of promise, a son whom he loved with all of his heart, a son named Isaac. And God said, I want you to take your son to a mountain that I will show you. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. It marks the only time in scripture where ever God ever asked for a sacrifice like this. And Abraham, because of the relationship that he had with the Lord, he didn't hesitate. And he began to march with his son. And it took them three days to get to the space where God had shown them. Anything significant about that? Abraham and his only son walking for three days. And they come on the third day to the place called Moriah, Mount Moriah. And Isaac is there, and he's carrying the wood. And he says, Dad, I see we've got all of the things for the sacrifice, but I don't see a sacrifice. Where is it? <laughs> and Abraham, speaking prophetically in that moment, said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. So significant. And then they get to the mountain, and they climb it together. And then Abraham looks at his son with tears in his eyes. He says, son, lay down. He begins to bind his son to the altar. He takes a knife. I'm looking at my son here. I'm about to cry thinking about it. He raises a knife over his son. And he's about to plunge the knife into his only son. And in that moment, God sees his faith, the faith that Abraham had, the faith that God could raise the dead. And God says, hold on. He sends an angel. And the angel says, Abraham, don't touch your son. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Use it as a substitute. And so Abraham drops his knife. And Isaac says, yeah, dad, go get the, uh, go get the ram. <laughs> and he grabs the ram. And they, they slay the, the ram as a, as a substitute. And ever since that time, this became a symbol to the nation of Israel of God's redemptive, saving power. You, you see glimpses of this in places like Psalm 18, verse 2. Let's go ahead and read that together out loud. It says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and horn of my salvation. Amen. Psalm 18:2. The Lord is the horn of my salvation, reaching back to Abraham and Isaac. But as we look back, we know of another story of a father and a son. And this time it was God the Father, and he's looking at his only begotten son, Jesus, who left heaven and came to this earth and lived a perfect life for us. 
And they go to the same exact mountain some 4,000 years later. It's Jesus ascending Mount Moriah, only this time there is no substitute. Why? Because he was the lamb that Abraham had prophesied of thousands of years previously. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross, and the fire of God's wrath fell on his only begotten son so that you and I could be welcomed into his kingdom, could be rose in his righteousness could become his sons and his daughters for all of eternity. And so it is said that this sound, the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the shofar, it, it pierces the heart of our heavenly dad. Because every time he hears this unique tone, this unique frequency, it reminds him of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. But let me tell you something else. Every time Satan hears this sound, oh, don't you know it. Every time our enemy hears this sound, it sends a shiver down his spine because it reminds him of his ultimate defeat when Jesus went to the cross. Death, hell, Satan, sin, it was forever done away with. Praise the Lord. Yes. Praise the Lord. We're going to get more of that in just a moment. I'm almost done. Because I want to get back to worshiping just like you guys. But I want to talk for just a few minutes about what it looks like when God blows the trumpet. Because when you read scripture, you see numerous places where people and angels blow trumpets. But there are only two instances in this book where God blows the shofar. The first time occurs in Exodus chapter 19. And at this point, the people of Israel have been delivered through the Red Sea from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And God wanted to gather all the people, all three million of them at the base of Mount Sinai. And as they stood there waiting in anticipation for the Lord God to show up, there was thunder, the Bible says, and there was a thick cloud and there was lightning and it covered the mountain, if you can picture that. And then they began to hear the sound of a trumpet. And listen to this. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, and it grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. So this is God blowing the shofar. And Moses spoke, it says, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses on the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So listen, three things that stand out to me. The blast of the trumpet. God comes down, Moses goes up, and he meets with the Lord on the top of the mountain. Oh, man. That's the first time that God blows the trumpet. And where's the second time where God blows the trumpet? It happens in the book of Revelation. 
Now, the book of Revelation, it's a scary book for some of you. It's a beautiful book because it, it depicts what is going to happen when Jesus comes back and he writes every wrong. And for those of you who are like in the dark or, you know, it's, it's fuzzy for you, here's all you need to know about the book of Revelation and what it's all about. It means we win, okay? So there you go. That's your commentary on the book of Revelation. And it begins with John receiving this glorious vision of the resurrected Lord. And then he receives seven letters that are directed to seven different churches that were local churches scattered throughout Asia Minor at that time. And in each letter that God is directing to his church, he gives them a partial revelation of himself. He also commends certain things about each church. And then he also warns the churches about things that he sees pulling them away from him. And, and so they were, there's different ways to look at these letters. One is they were seven actual letters written to seven literal churches. Another way to view them is to see them as different types or kinds of Christians. You can find yourself in the various letters to the churches. But then there's a third way to look at these seven letters, and that is to view them through the lens of church history. And we see all of Christendom, all of the church age, play out through these seven letters. And, and I like that view because at the end of it, the very next thing that happens at the end of the church age, you come to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and, and this is what it says. It says, after these things. So in other words, after the church age, after that last person gets saved, John says, I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So after the church age, there's the sound of a trumpet. The voice of the Lord says, come up here, and God catches John up into that place. And from there, the book describes what will happen during the tribulation period. And following that, it will culminate with the Lord's return, where he'll destroy his enemies and rule and reign for a thousand years. And so the trumpet of God. Now, now there's one more trumpet I want to talk about as we close. And it's this idea of the last trump. I mentioned earlier how there are a hundred blasts. And most of those are short, staccato-type notes that are sounded throughout the day to celebrate this feast. But then you come to the very last trump, and it's long, and it's pronounced, and the Bible talks about it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, and I'd love it if we could read this out loud together. It's a bit lengthy, but I think we can do it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. All right, praise the Lord. This verse is giving us divine insight into event that Christians have looked forward to for the last 2,000 years. It's an event known as the rapture of the church. And Paul says it's going to happen in the twinkle of an eye, and I can't talk about that without thinking of my dad who used to say, you know, a twinkle is faster than a blinkle. <laughs> a twinkle is when just the, the light catches your eye in just such a way. And he used to like to say this, you know, 
A twinkle is so fast, it's instantaneous, so that by the time you blinked, you could blink, and by the time you opened your eyes back again, you've already been in heaven for a little while. Now, does that sound good to anyone else? This is just the dress rehearsal. We're getting ready. We're getting ready, because the king is coming back soon. Now, in scripture, trumpets were used for primarily three reasons, a number of others, but these three primary ones, to assemble the people, to call the people to war, and to coronate a new king. Listen, I'm listening right now. The trumpet is going to sound. It is imminent. That means <laughs> it, means it could happen in any moment. It's imminent. It is the next thing. There is no prophecies that need to be fulfilled before Jesus can come back. That was settled when Israel became a nation again in 1948. And every day since that day, the clock has been ticking. And let me tell you, we're right there at midnight. And since none of us knows the exact time of this future shofar blast, it ought to provoke us to be ready. And we use nights like tonight to awaken our hearts, to stir our affections, to prepare for the coming of the king when we crown him as king of kings. And we do that tonight through our worship. But there's coming a day soon where seeing will be believing and we'll take the crowns that he places them on our heads and we'll cast those at his feet and we'll join the throng and the countless multitude from generations past as we declare, worthy is the lamb who was slain. At the same time, that trumpet blast will signal to Satan that his days are numbered. And so too, this wicked world, God is going to right every wrong. And finally, the last Trump announces the coronation of our Messiah and King. And tonight, I don't know about you, but I'm casting my vote. I crown Jesus as King. Let me leave you with this picture. In fact, let me just invite everyone in this room to bow your heads and close your eyes as I read this picture. This comes to us from the book of Revelation. This is your future, child of God. Listen carefully. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe. Listen, he was clothed with a robe that had been dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it, he will strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, people. The Lord is coming back soon. And the only question I have for you tonight is, are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to meet him? And I just want to give an opportunity because in a group this size, 
Undoubtedly, there are some here, and you came because you were invited by a friend, and you didn't realize it, but you have a divine appointment with the living God, and he brought you here not just so that you could hear some cool music and listen to some guy blow a shofar. He brought you here because he wants to bring you into his family. He loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place, and if you will put your faith in him, your sins will be forgiven, your past will be wiped clean, your guilt and your shame will be removed. He will replace those with his own robes of righteousness. He will welcome you into his family. He will write your name in the Lamb's book of life so that you can have the hope of heaven, knowing that your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. If that's the desire of your heart and God has moved in your life tonight and you want Jesus, you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven, you just lift your hand up high. I want to pray with you tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for the hands going up all over this room. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. There's no shame in this. You're amongst friends. Anybody else that says, I want Jesus, I want forgiveness, I want life, you raise your hand up and you raise it high. It just solidifies on the outside. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All of you who just raise your hands, you keep them up, lift them high. It's a sign of surrender, and we're surrendering to God tonight. And you just pray this prayer out loud with me, mean it from the bottom of your heart, and Jesus, according to his promise, will come and make his home in your heart. You say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and for saving me, for dying in my place, for taking my sin. I receive the gift of your forgiveness and the power of your Holy Spirit to break with my past, to bury my sin, and to walk in resurrection life until I meet you face to face. I love you, Jesus, with all my heart all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Amen. You know the Bible says something. The Bible says that heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Can we make some noise and join the angels as we celebrate what God has done this evening?